Thanks for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Reformation Lutheran Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Our texts this week are from 1 Samuel chapter 1, 9 through 11 and 19 through 20, chapter 2, 1 through 10. We'll also hear a bit of the gospel from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Thanks for listening and God bless you. You may be seated and you may buckle up. I'm going to begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, it is very presumptuous of me to speak after your servants Hannah and the Blessed Virgin Mary have spoken and have sung your praises. I pray that you would give me the words, the words to make these songs echo in the hearts of all the people who hear them today and all the people out in the world that we may tremble before the power of your justice, and we may be made alive by the power of your grace. Amen. 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 So uh, I uh, there's, a, there's a very small suburb of Cleveland um, that I had been to a couple of times. It's called Bay Village. It is, on a, it is right on Lake Erie. Uh, legend is Kevin Costner supposedly owns a house around there. I kid you not, Glenn Beck uh, had um, a, a kind of celebration saying Bay Village is what a town in America should look like. And I remember I was uh, I was living in uh, the near west side of Cleveland at that time going, you think a town in America should look 96% white, Glenn? Okay. Mm-hmm. But so just giving you a sense of uh, Bay Village, it's a wonderful community. If any of you happen to live there who are uh, listening to this, it's beautiful. It's right on the lake. They've got a bunch of beautiful old like English style houses and colonial houses. It's a really wonderful place to live. I was there for a wedding uh, and I was told once by, I went on a date with a girl who grew up there and she told me, don't pronounce it Bay Village, pronounce it Bah Village. And it's it's kind of true. It's, uh, it's, it's about as hoity-toity as you can get um, on the west side. But anyway, I, I don't tell you this to indulge in Cleveland trivia, Uh, But Bay Village was in the news uh, last week. So at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church, um, and I know I shared this on Facebook, they had, um, there's a statue that was uh, going around in several churches uh, in the Cleveland area, and the statue was called, uh, is called, uh, I don't know what it's actually called, but it's a statue of a homeless person. And if you look, right at the feet, you see those piercing marks, right? You've got to look really closely. And this statue is for churches, and I think it's something like it. It's from a Canadian sculptor. I think it was in our synod not too long ago. But it makes the rounds. So at St. Barnabas Church, rather than just putting it in front of the church, what they did was they put this statue in a nearby park, kind of a public place to raise awareness. Well, it was not there for too long before a resident of Bay Village saw the statue on the bench, assumed it was a real person, and did what they thought was right to do whenever you see a person sleeping on a bench without a home, uh, what they thought was right, which was to call the police. So Bay Village now has the distinction of being uh, one of the communities in America on which Jesus had the police called. That story, I think, teaches itself. We love the kinds of Jesus that we see depicted inside churches. 
a Jesus full of glory, a Jesus with a smiling face, sometimes a Jesus with blonde hair, right? We love that glorious Jesus that we see inside the sanctuary. But the second that Jesus leaves that sanctuary and takes on a form that is uh, a little less inviting to our sensibilities, it is perceived as a threat. And this is not an indictment of the western suburbs of Cleveland. My mother tells me that homeless Jesus was at our home church, not to brag, but that several congregation members came up to the statue to see if it was doing okay and if it could get some help, right? So uh, this is a wonderful lesson, and I think the statue uh, continues to teach by depicting Jesus in the place where God wants to meet us and where God wants to meet people, where there is need and where there is suffering. But we are so content to have God in a place that makes us comfortable, right? St. Barnabas is a beautiful church, right? That person might even have been a member either there or St. Raphael's. Uh, I don't think we have an ELCA church in Bay Village yet. I could be wrong. Um, but that person may have may have been a churchgoer that was very comfortable with the Jesus that was safely confined in a church, the Jesus that you could sing really nice hymns to, Jesus that could make you feel better about being a good and loving person. But the second that Jesus leaves those friendly confines and enters the world and confronts us in the form of people who scare us or in the form of people who are lower than us and make us guilty or people who just, uh, it, you know, we are where we don't think they, they belong. We tend to push this out. And it is right in that place, in the place where people who we are uncomfortable with are, that's the place that Jesus meets us. Now, one of the great ways, I think, in our contemporary society that we practice unfaith is that we love to obsess about the end of the world, or we'll call it the apocalypse. And this year, having been such a strange year with Every time we uh, look at our phones, there's a new news update with something that's completely chaotic or unexpected. Sometimes the Cleveland Browns are four and one, and we are looking at signs thinking that, oh, well, this is pointing to the end times because we think that all God does is sit around, make sure that we're behaving ourselves, and then he'll come at the end to kind of you know, sort everything out and see who's been good, see who has uh, all the right virtue points, and then let those people in. It's such an act of unfaith, and it's not even what an apocalypse is. The apocalypse does not wait for the end of the world. The apocalypse is something that nobody expects, like the Spanish Inquisition. As a matter of fact, what apocalypse means is just revelation. And so if you look at the etymology of the word or where the word comes from, the Greek word is right on your screen. And it comes from this Greek word apokalypso, uh, which is a really great way to say that. And kalypso is, the, is a cover or a veil 
something like a bride would wear or something like you would put on a really fancy car that you keep in your garage, right? That's a cover or a veil. An oppo just means take it away. So every time that we take, every time we have a revelation, the veil is being taken away. And you see this, uh, this sense of apocalypse time and time again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If I were to call the Bible something other than the books or the Bible, I would say the apocalypses. Every single book is full of apocalypses. Every single book is full of stories of God showing up again and again. And some of the most powerful places that God showed up were for two women who would otherwise have been forgotten, Hannah and Mary, both young, pregnant women who had God show up powerfully in their lives. And they started to sing apocalypse songs. These are fight songs. I know we like to have the Magnificat at Christmas, and we do hold an evening prayer, and you know we sing that song, and we go, oh, isn't this nice? But these are fight songs. They're songs about the world being overturned. These are battle cries from faithful women, from faithful people who have had God show up in their lives and turn everything around. Hannah is singing today because there has been an apocalypse. And so the story of Hannah, for those of you who have been keeping track from week to week, the story of Hannah is the beginning of a book called First Samuel. Hannah was Samuel's mother, and Samuel will be the prophet who will anoint, bless, and guide kings. As a matter of fact, the uh, books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, you go to um, a, a translation from around the time that Jesus was alive of the Bible into Greek. These four books were just called kingdoms. These were just history books. So the story of Hannah is how the history of the kings of Israel starts, right? No big battles, no, uh, you know, no, uh, no King Arthur uh, hoping to pull the sword out of the stone one day. None of that exciting stuff. Just the story of a young girl who is from uh, also uh, the hill country. Hannah would probably not live in Bay Village. She's from a region called Rama, which is in kind of the southern, uh, in the hill country uh, in Israel. Um, so I'll allow you to make those associations of what being from the hill country means. And Hannah is uh, in kind of a sister-wife situation, for those of you who are fans of that show. There were just two of them. Uh, it was Hannah and Penina, and they were both married to a man. And Penina had um, had many children, and Hannah was not able to bear a child. Luckily, Hannah has a wonderful and loving husband who is so kind to her, either because he really loves her, either because he feels sorry for her, or we don't know exactly the reason. And, 
But he does say it at one point. Hannah, am I not dear, more dear to you than ten sons? But there's nothing that he can do to make her happy. It's a very difficult thing for Hannah to live in a world and in a time where her only value is what her body can produce for her husband. And she is mocked mercilessly, mercilessly by her sister wife. If you look at the story, the place where she gets mocked is very important. Hannah is mocked by her sister wife every time they go up to Shiloh and go up to the temple. Every time they go up to the temple, Penina, it says, disturbs or insults or mocks or annoys or vexes Hannah very much. And I could just imagine what Penina is saying to Hannah as they go to the temple. Why are you coming to the temple? God obviously doesn't love you. God has not blessed you with children. What are you doing here? You're, you're a drag on our holy experience. Hannah, God just doesn't love you like he loves me. And that's got to be a really hard thing to take. Imagine being abused and insulted as you come to church. Probably many of you this has happened to, and there are people I know who have felt that and who are told every time they go to church, well, look at your life. Look how God does not love you. And so on one of these trips, she's hanging out at the outer courtyard of the, of the temple. Maybe, maybe the narthex, maybe the parking lot. It's not in the inner sanctum of the temple. And she's trying so hard to pray without saying the words out loud, maybe because she doesn't want her husband or Panina to hear her. But she's doing this kind of like moaning prayer. And it's so loud that Eli, who's the priest at the temple, hears her and assumes that she's just on a bender. He assumes that she's just drunk. So he comes out and says, look, you're drunk. Go home. This is the house of the Lord. But Hannah is unafraid. She approaches Eli and says, look, I'm not a worthless woman. She tells Eli the story. And we don't know if Eli actually had pity on her or just wanted to be left alone. And he hears her petition where she says, I just want a son. I just want a child. Even if I get one, I will give him back. I'll bless him in the temple. I'll dedicate him into the temple service. But I just want a son. And listening, this tired priest says, okay, may the Lord do what you request. And amazingly enough, in a sorrowful woman, and a very tired priest. In the word that that priest gives her, God honors those words. And God shows up and gives Hannah a son. Now, his, the son's name is Samuel. And in the text, it says that his name means, this is the one I've asked for. But you can also look at the word family and translate the name of the son. Shema El. 
Those of you who know maybe a little bit of Hebrew know the famous prayer in Judaism, the Shema, hear, O Israel, and then El, for Elohim, for the Lord, for God. Samuel's name, the name of this child that she wanted with every fiber of her being, the name she gave him can be translated, God heard me. That was an apocalypse. That was God peering out from the midst of Hannah's despair, her grief, her rejection, her mockery. It was God showing up in the midst of all that and saying, here is a son. And not just any son. A son who will anoint kings. A son who will give your word, give my word to my people. A son who will walk in my ways. And Hannah is, I don't know how she could have done this, having a having two sons of my own, but this dear son, her only son, her only child, once he was old enough, once he was weaned and old enough to fend for himself, she takes him back to the temple and gives him to Eli and says, this is going to be someone I've given back to the Lord. I made a vow. I'm going to Keep my word to God. Here is my only son. And he's going to serve at the temple. But what mattered to her most of all was that God heard. So imagine. I don't know if any of you have been blessed at a time in your life when you can definitely say that you prayed and God heard it. Right? Where it's dramatic. Like Hannah's, where she ha- finally gets pregnant and has a son. Most of the time when I find answered prayer in my life, it's because I asked for something that I didn't, that uh, was too great for me, and I got it in, a, in the way that I needed it, not that I wanted it. Or sometimes I'm able to look back on my life and, and look at things I, I prayed for. You know, a beautiful wife, wonderful kids, a nice home. I can look back at at those things that maybe I prayed for and they showed up later, not immediately like Hannah did. And maybe if more prayers got answered, maybe if we knew that God heard as immediate as Hannah did, maybe then we would do what always happens when there's an apocalypse. You start singing. If you remember in September, I preached about Abraham hearing God sing to him these promises until he finally heard it. But Hannah does Abraham one better. She doesn't just believe the promise. She gets to carry the promise in her body. And because of that, she sings. She belts it out. She joins her voice in harmony with the promises of God. And it is one of the most beautiful things in the Bible. But what makes it even more cool from my perspective is I like to imagine when Hannah is singing it. I imagine that Hannah is singing it with Penina coming back from the temple after she's just done this really hard thing of giving this child back to the temple who's going to be such a blessing to God. I imagine her just looking at her sister wife in the face saying, God doesn't love me, huh? Well, think about that again. This song is a clap back. And what she's saying to Penina is that, yes, God loves me and God loves people like me. You don't get to be all high and mighty. God loves the low, the poor, the barren, the left out, the grieving, the people who are screaming and people think they're drunk in the front of the temple, all the people who are left out. Those are the ones that God loves. 
That's who she sings about. God is in our corner. God is our fan club. We are the ones who God listens to. And I love the way that she says, the one who is barren will bear seven sons, right? Over the amount of children that Penina had. And then she says the name of the Lord seven times in this prayer to show that what has happened to her is a blessed sign, right? The first creation was how many days? Seven. Seven. And so God's name is mentioned here seven times, saying this is a new creation in me. No matter how mighty this kingdom gets, and it gets pretty mighty under David and very mighty under Solomon, this story reminds us of where this kingdom began, in the womb and in the heart of a barren woman, in the womb and the heart of one who is considered to be just a step above property, in the outcast, in the oppressed, in the afflicted. That's where the story of God's kingdom begins. And that's where we need to listen to that story, not only in our own life, in our own lives and in the things that happen to us, but in the things that are happening to the people around us. God heard Hannah in her oppression. And are we listening to the ones who are praying? and who God hears. Are we listening to the song of the immigrant? Are we listening to the song of the refugee? Are we listening to the family member of one killed by the police? Are we listening to those who are struggling and can't pay their bills and have lost their jobs and don't have decent health care? Are we listening to the, to the one sitting in a nursing home that that has somebody caring for them that has to work multiple jobs. So they're carrying a deadly plague from building to building to building and putting them at risk. Are you listening to the ones that live in communities where jobs and economic opportunity have, have, have gone away because it's better for the stock price of some company? Are we listening to the ones who have, who have suffered abuse? Are we listening? to those who God has his ear turned to all the time? Are we listening to the fight song that Hannah is singing against the arrogant? Are we listening to that song about who really gets to sit on the throne of Israel? By the way, translations always take Hannah's song and they go, well, it's kind of like a throne. No, she sings that the that people who are on the ash heap are going to be put on the throne. It is a song about God's reversal and a song about who really has the kingship, whose presence God really shows up in. It's homeless Jesus. It's people that we would otherwise step over. It's not the great and the powerful. It's not the people that we invest all our hopes in and vote for and argue about. It's the people who are low or weak or sick or suffering, who are struggling. Those are the ones who the throne is destined for. And you can call it whatever you want, but God's calculus is so much bigger than the labels that we use. 
And the throne that God has is, is in God's hands. And the only election that matters is who God has decided to put on that throne. The one who became mocked, left out, outcast, suffered, wounded, killed by the state. That's the one who gets to sit on the throne. And all those with him in that state who he brings with him. Now, Hannah makes this wonderful confession that uh, I have to say, it's so uh, close to the heart of Lutheran theology, but she says, the Lord kills and makes alive. In seminary, I learned a lot, I don't know if you did too, right? That the Lord kills and makes alive. This is about sermons. This is about preaching. This is about the Christian life. This is about baptism, right? We try to, we try to take this promise and we just try to domesticate it or churchify it. And, and, and then this matters for, for, for all of you. Because I think when Hannah confesses that what God is up to is killing and making alive, is that everything that we see happening, even when it looks like it isn't, even when this nation is under the toe of enemies, even when this nation will go into civil wars, even when this nation will walk away from God, no, run away from God and from God's commandments, and they, even when this nation starts killing God's prophets, all that stuff that's going to happen in their history, all of that is resting in God's hands. All of the things that we see, all the things that we are afraid of, all the privileges that we're afraid of losing, all the suffering that we feel could be coming upon us, this all rests in God's hands. God is the one who kills. God is the one who makes alive. God is the one who is at work. God is the one who shows up. And so what Hannah is calling us to is not to just have faith in God as this principle of love, but she is calling us to know what kind of God that we have and to have faith in the future. That's a fight song, right? If you ever sing a fight song with your college or your high school, Right? Do you ever say, well, I hope we win so we can still be great? No, right? Sometimes the best times I got to, you know, we, I ever got to sing a fight song was when the team lost. Right? That's what she's doing. She's giving us a fight song, even when we're winning to celebrate, when we're losing to keep singing because we know that God is on the side of the loser. Hannah's song, man, I just hope you turn back to it. I hope you hear it. And you will hear it again. Because this song got covered by another poor, young, pregnant girl who knew Hannah's song by heart, who talked about God who scatters the proud, a God who lifts up the lowly. And she got to sing about this God who was in her belly. She got to sing about the one being in her belly who was the proof that God hears us. So whether it's with the low and the lowly that you meet, or whether it's the low and lowly that you feel like or are. May this one in Mary's belly be apocalypsed to you as you keep singing along to Hannah's song and the promise that brought it forth. Amen. Amen.